Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. One night in 2007, 44-year-old David Russell Williams snuck out of his home in Ontario, Canada, leaving his sleeping wife in bed. While she laid undisturbed, he snuck down their dimly lit street and headed toward the neighbor's house. These were close friends of Russell and his wife, or at least as close as they had those days. They'd had dinner with them several times and even gone to the lake to fish together. But this wasn't a casual drop-by between friends. Russell had something else in mind entirely. He stopped outside the house and confirmed what he already knew, that the family was gone for the weekend. Smiling, he entered their home through an unlocked door. It wasn't the first time he had done such a thing. This was his third time breaking into this home. And this time, he knew exactly what he wanted. He made his way up to their daughter's bedroom, where he searched through her drawers until he pulled out a pair of red underwear. Then he stripped down and put them on before laying down on the bed and pleasuring himself. As he did so, he took pictures, eager to document the entire experience. And then, when he was done, Russell quietly left the bedroom, crept downstairs, and returned home. Then, a few hours later, he got up and went to work as the commanding officer of Canada's largest Air Force base. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every episode, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers. Today, we'll delve into the twisted mind of David Russell Williams, one of Canada's most disturbing serial killers. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we'll explore how Russell's childhood and early adulthood differed from most serial killers until something in him snapped. Next time, we'll learn how his crimes escalated to murder. Then we'll discover the fatal mistake that put him on the authorities' radar. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about. And when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was. And I was able to see it in a different light. And it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day -day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. Most serial killers show warning signs, actions that, in retrospect, we can point to as red flags gone unheeded. Part of the intrigue when looking into the lives of these killers is checking off the warning signs as we document their life. Like mile markers on a road race, we take note of each one as they go by. But not every killer fits into the mold our expectations build. Sometimes the scariest monsters come out of nowhere, with absolutely no rhyme or reason to explain their deadly impulses. Then again, if we look closely, is it possible to predict their future by examining their squeaky clean past? That's what we're doing today with David Russell Williams. Russell's life began in 1963 in Bromsgrove, a town in Worcestershire, England. His father, Cedric David Williams, was a scientist, and his mother, Christine Noni, was a physiotherapist. They were both highly educated, ambitious, and career-focused. So when Russell's father received an offer to work for Chalk River Laboratories in Canada, it was a no-brainer. David and Christine decided to move, along with their children, five-year-old Russell and three-year-old Harvey. In the preceding years, Canada, and Chalk River specifically, had become a hot destination for scientists. It was home to Canada's first nuclear power plant and several scientific discoveries that were putting it on the map, all of which David wanted to be part of. Despite the transatlantic move, five-year-old Russell kept a happy, positive attitude. He was friendly and cheerful to everyone he met. No one had any complaints about him, except perhaps that he was a little too proper for a five-year-old. But aside from that, Russell was a typical child. He was young still, but there were no signs of any strange behavior or disturbing thoughts. If there was any trouble in young Russell's life, it came courtesy of his parents. It wasn't long after they emigrated to Canada that cracks began to show in David and Christine's marriage. David was abrasive and verbally abusive. He demanded things be done exactly as he said, and he often criticized Christine in public. But none of this seemed to affect Russell too much. Not until the Williams met another family from the neighborhood, Jerry and Marilyn Sofka. Immediately, the two couples got along well. Maybe a little too well. Within a year of meeting their new friends, Christine accused her husband of cheating on her with Marilyn. David didn't deny it, and Christine demanded a divorce. Jerry demanded the same of his wife. He no longer wanted to be married to her either. And then, just four months later, Christine and Jerry got remarried to each other. Despite how peculiar and sudden the marital flip-flop was, Russell might have felt a sense of relief. By all accounts, his new stepdad was far more easygoing than his biological father. Still, while he lived mostly with his mom and Jerry, Russell remained close with his dad. As far as we can tell, the divorce didn't appear to have any lasting traumatic effects. Vanessa's going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. As a note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. 
When we talk about serial killers, there are a few warning signs that consistently show up as possible indicators of later trouble to come. According to the National Museum for Crime and Punishment, this can include antisocial behavior, an affinity for arson or animal cruelty, a poor family life, or an abusive childhood. But surprisingly, none of that applied to Russell. Not as a young kid, and not as he matured into a teenager either. According to neurocriminologist Adrian Rain, this means that Russell's eventual killings were likely the result of a hidden, violent nature, not as a result of experiences throughout his upbringing. While he had a perfectly pleasant and typical childhood, it's certainly possible there was a genetic predisposition to violence in his DNA. But for now, whatever violence his future held, Russell's life was unremarkable. He maintained a good relationship with both his parents. He was kind, humble, and polite. He may have kept to himself more than some of his peers, but he was a bright kid who threw himself into the things he enjoyed, like playing squash and playing trumpet in the school jazz band. There are other warning signs that in some cases might indicate future violence in a child's life, like substance abuse, voyeurism, above-average IQ, or shiftlessness. But Russell didn't exhibit any of those qualities either. He didn't drink or do drugs, he had little interest in girls, and displayed no strange sexual fantasies. He was smart, but not extremely intelligent, and he was incredibly focused. Russell was determined to achieve anything he set his mind to. Whether it was his morning paper route or a game of squash, he was always on time and ready to perform. Nothing could shake him, not even when life threw him some curveballs. Not long after Russell started high school in 1978, his parents announced that everything was about to change again. His stepdad landed a job in South Korea, and so he and Russell's mom packed the family up and moved. Despite the unexpected change, Russell handled the move well and loved his life in South Korea. He had the opportunity to learn martial arts, which he excelled at. He also fell in love with baseball, joining and excelling on a local team. Unfortunately, Russell's positive experiences didn't completely outweigh the bad. He was often mistaken for being American, which in South Korea wasn't a good thing due to the U.S. troops stationed in the country. According to one of his classmates, a South Korean kid had once called him a Yankee, then spat in his face. It was a humiliating experience, and one that Russell held on to for a while. Even as he adjusted to his new normal, nothing seemed too permanent in Russell's life. In 1980, after just a year overseas, his mother and stepfather decided to send him and his brother back to Toronto. Russell and Harvey were both enrolled as boarders at the elite Upper Canada College for Boys. Like his time in South Korea, Russell's experience there was a mixed bag. Academically, he excelled. He was named a prefect, and he managed to get good grades. But there were certain areas in which he believed himself undoubtedly superior to his peers, and his smug tone reflected that. Eventually, Russell's condescension grated on the other students. They were sick of his arrogant belief that he was smarter than everyone, so they decided to take him down a notch or two. Russell's bullies brainstormed their options, then landed on a prank that was relatively harmless, but undoubtedly cruel. And it was simple. According to a fellow boarder interviewed by the Toronto Star, the young men lured Russell into his room and then locked him inside. 
It's unclear just how long Russell was trapped, but eventually he escaped by tying together bedsheets and climbing out the window. It was a traumatic experience, but one that left little lasting damage. Still, in 1982, 19-year-old Russell graduated and was glad to bid the school farewell. Now, as an adult, he finally got to choose what he did next. His days of moving around the world according to his parents' careers was over. That fall, he decided to head to the University of Toronto's Scarborough campus for college. Russell felt good about the decision. He was finally, truly stepping out on his own. But Russell would soon learn that his true colors weren't something he could share with the world. Coming up, Russell lays the groundwork for his secret life. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast and premieres Monday, May 3rd. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. Young Russell Williams had been dragged across the globe for most of his childhood. Britain, then Canada, then South Korea, only to end up back in Canada. Until finally, in 1982, 19-year-old Russell graduated high school and headed off to college at the University of Toronto. It was the first time he had made his own choice about the direction of his life. In Scarborough, Russell moved into a townhouse with five other students and quickly assumed the position of organizer-in-chief. He was so obsessed with keeping their home neat and clean that he became a bit of a drill sergeant about it. He designated chores for his roommates and made sure to keep everyone on the schedule so nothing slipped through the cracks. He also always seemed to be the one to do extra cleaning, just for the sake of keeping the place pristine. Now with no parents or teachers to supervise him, other facets of his personality emerged as well. Now, instead of being the one who had pranks pulled on him, he was the one doing the pranking. They started out as simple practical jokes. He'd hide in closets and then jump out and yell, surprising who had ever just come into the room. Or he'd do silly things like saran wrap the toilet bowl. But he also started to take it a step further. He began to devise incredibly intricate ways to throw people off. For example, one time, he completely disassembled a lock and adjusted all the internal tumblers so that when he put it back on the door, it needed an entirely different key to be unlocked. With each prank, he'd wait in the wings to see his victim walk into the trap. He loved witnessing their helplessness, and it always made him laugh. That said, no one really thought anything of this behavior. For his roommates, it was all in good fun. As Russell settled into his role as prankster, something else came into his life, a girlfriend. Around the end of his first year, he met Misa, a Japanese exchange student, and fell hard. From the get-go, Russell was entirely devoted to Misa, but she didn't seem to feel the same way. Russell may not have realized it at the time, but his friends noticed how strange it was that the couple never hugged or kissed in public, and Misa was apparently very domineering, and she was clearly the one who dictated what happened between the two of them. 
Whether Russell felt emasculated by his lack of a physical relationship with Misa is unclear, but it's quite possible that this relationship overlapped with the beginning of some odd sexual fantasies. By his own admission, Russell started to fantasize about wearing women's underwear at some point in his 20s, possibly while he was still in college. Whether he had these thoughts while he was with Misa, or if they developed after her, Russell began to have extremely conflicting feelings about sex and arousal, as well as his interest in dressing in women's clothing, particularly their underwear. These feelings could be early indicators of Russell's later sexual sadism. It just went unnoticed at the time because Russell never acted on it. Or if he did, he was never caught, and he never admitted to it. Russell's college behavior meets the sexual sadist profile developed by psychiatrist Dr. Robert P. Britton in several other ways, such as being socially isolated, disinclined to drink alcohol, and overly fussy about his living quarters. Dr. Britton goes on to explain that sexual sadists often lack intimate experience and struggle to perform, which leads to feelings of inadequacy and inferiority. They make up for that by privately engaging in their sexual fantasies, which can, quote, contribute to feelings of superiority because they know something no one else does. A smug sense of superiority wasn't a new facet of Russell's personality. But if it got worse during his relationship to Misa, it might have contributed to her growing indifference. Then again, any number of issues might have caused the young couple to grow apart. Sometimes that just happens. Eventually, after two years of dating, Misa had enough and ended things. Russell was completely blindsided. He broke down in tears and was inconsolable. Interestingly, it was one of the few times his school friends ever saw him get emotional. Again, this display of emotion, or rather even the ability to feel such emotion, contradicts what we might assume about a person destined to become a serial killer. Generally, people think of serial killers as having difficulty processing emotions. But despite what popular culture depictions of killers have taught us, that's far from accurate. And it certainly wasn't the case with Russell at all. He felt things. And when his girlfriend broke up with him, he really felt things. According to one of his friends, Russell spiraled into depression while also trying to win Misa back. He used all the classic moves, like sending her a dozen roses and showing up in places where he knew she would be. The tactics didn't work. Misa didn't want to get back together. She sent the flowers back and told Russell to stay away. Eventually, Russell got the message. They were done. He'd never get his first love back. He was utterly heartbroken. Still, there's no evidence that Misa dumping him was any kind of traumatic trigger for Russell. He was sad, yes, devastated even. But then he picked himself back up and devoted himself to something new. That same year, the movie Top Gun came out, and Russell was obsessed. There was just something about the whole military mentality that resonated with him. He'd always been a competitive athlete, and he liked the idea of doing something that required physical and mental excellence. Russell watched the movie so many times that he could practically recite it line for line. His friends made fun of him for it, and even started affectionately referring to him as Top Gun but Russell ignored their jabs. He'd worked out what the next chapter in his life was going to be. He wanted to become a pilot for the Canadian Air Force. There was just one issue. 
Russell didn't know how to fly, so he figured step one in his plan ought to be overcoming that particular hurdle. Lucky for Russell, his friend's uncle was a pilot. So, after some finagling, Russell managed to get his friend's uncle, we'll call him Bill, to take him up in his Cessna. Bill showed Russell all the controls, gave him a quick lesson, and then let him give it a go. He wasn't expecting much, but he was wowed at the natural talent Russell displayed. It was like he belonged in the cockpit. Russell kept taking flying lessons until he graduated university in 1987 and proved that Bill's first impression wasn't a fluke. He was a natural, and the military recognized that as well. They accepted him right out of school. Russell reported to basic training at Canadian Forces Base Chilliwack in British Columbia, but he still wasn't home free. From there, he had to make another cut to be selected for the aircrew pilot program. He was put through the ringer. Not only was he tested physically, but mentally as well. The recruiters had to make sure that the personalities of the future pilots were right for the role. It was a high-pressure position, one that required a certain type of soldier. Not just anyone could do the job. But Russell had what they were looking for. In particular, he had, quote, the ability in an unexpected situation or crisis to make a snap judgment and then instantly focus 100% on whatever needed to be done for as long as it took. In retrospect, many of the qualities that made Russell appealing to the military were the same ones that would eventually enable his criminal double life. The ability to stay on task at all costs, to think on his feet and stay calm in stressful situations, and to do whatever was necessary to meet the end goal. But at the time, all the military recruiters saw was someone who was perfectly suited to be an officer. He made the cut he became a pilot. From there, Russell made several stops along his training journey. He did a few months here, another stint there. At each base, he learned new skills and how to fly different types of aircraft. Within three years, Russell earned his wings and became a fully qualified military pilot in 1990. He was so good at what he did that he was promoted to lieutenant and enlisted as an instructor for younger pilots. Russell was a good teacher, intense but kind. He knew what he was doing and expected his students to similarly excel. But he was also generous with his time and knowledge. Most importantly, he was always calm under pressure. Where other instructors might resort to screaming to get the desired effects out of their pupils, Russell never raised his voice, and his students loved him for that. Around this time, Russell met someone else who appreciated his calm and cool demeanor. Her name was Mary Elizabeth Harriman, and Russell was smitten. Mary was highly educated and five years older than him. She had a bachelor's degree in applied science and an MBA in adult education. She worked for the Dairy Nutrition Council of Alberta and was devoted to health-related causes. Clearly, she was just as motivated to succeed as Russell. The two seemed like a great match. Sure enough, in June of 1991, 28-year-old Russell married 33-year-old Mary. It was a small ceremony with only a handful of guests. It seems neither of them favored a big fuss. But a year later, there was cause for celebration when Russell was offered a position in the 412 Squadron, a highly sought-after post. 
The 412 was also known as the VIP Squadron because they were often responsible for transporting important government officials, high-ranking military members, and foreign dignitaries. It was a great honor to be chosen, and on top of that, Russell was promoted to captain. For the next six years, he flew planes carrying high-profile officials, prime ministers, dignitaries, and even the Queen of England. During that time, Russell and Mary moved to a new home in Ottawa. Like her husband, Mary kept to herself. The two were friendly enough with neighbors, waving hello or stopping to chat at the end of the driveway. But Russell and Mary never invited anyone over for dinner or drinks, nor did they ever go to anyone else's house. It seemed Russell preferred it this way. He liked having his home life and work life completely separate, and he might have known that if forced to socialize with his neighbors, he'd have to talk about work with them. Then again, maybe he knew his socializing skills were poor, and he simply didn't want to go through the effort of pretending when he didn't have to. Not that he had much time to tend to his social life. Work kept Russell extremely busy. In November 1999, he was promoted to major and appointed Director General Military Careers. Then, in 2001, a rare distraction from work came in the form of some shocking family news. His mother and stepfather were getting divorced. Russell had always liked his stepdad, and that might be why Russell seemed to blame his mother for the marriage's breakdown. He stopped talking to her entirely, and he lost contact with his brother, too, who seemed to side with their mother. Russell's frustration with his family didn't last, though. Before long, he threw himself back into work. After all, he'd never been one to discuss family matters, so he wasn't about to start letting that affect what he was doing at the base. With renewed vigor, he became determined to improve his department. And the brass seemed to take notice. In 2004, he was promoted to lieutenant colonel. With a new promotion and increased salary, Russell and Mary decided to buy a second home. This one was a small cottage on Cozy Cove Lane in a small town called Tweed. They intended the cottage to be a weekend home, a place where they could escape from Ottawa and relax. But Russell had never been very good at letting loose. He continued to devote himself to work and was hardly ever home. Most of his neighbors knew nothing more about him other than that he was a high-ranking military officer. And that was just fine by Russell. He didn't need them getting to know him any better. For three more years, Russell carried on. The picture of discipline, hard work, and success. But then, everything changed. Coming up, Russell snaps and his criminal side emerges. Now back to the story. By 2004, 41-year-old Russell Williams had risen through the military ranks to Lieutenant Colonel. He and his wife Mary split their time between two houses, one in Ottawa and one in the small town of Tweed. Though Russell spent much of his time at work, out of his wife's company altogether. Not that this affected their marriage. From what we know, Russell and Mary had a good relationship. They were both just okay with being apart. When they were together, they seemed to make the most of it, keeping to themselves and enjoying each other's company. While Russell and Mary didn't socialize much, they did get to know one of the families who lived just down the street from their Tweed cottage. The couple went over to their house for dinner and sometimes fished together at the lake. As far as the other family was concerned, Russell and Mary were a perfectly nice couple. Russell, a high-ranking military official, was especially impressive, 
And that was exactly the cover he needed for him to do what he did next. One night in 2007, while his friends were gone for the weekend, 44-year-old Russell made his move. He broke into the other family's house, but he wasn't stealing valuables like electronics or jewelry. He was interested in the wife's underwear. We don't know what exactly prompted this departure in behavior. As far as we know, Russell had never committed any crimes before this point. He'd spent the better part of two decades serving as a military officer with an impeccable record. So this was likely a real turning point. It's unclear whether there was a triggering event or if this was a long-simmering desire that simply bubbled over. All we know is that he broke into the house, and then he did it a second time, and a third. During one of the break-ins, Russell made his way to the bedroom of the family's 12-year-old daughter. She wasn't there that night, but his target wasn't her. It was her underwear. He went through her drawers and pulled out a red pair. Then he quickly stripped off his own clothes and put them on. After that, he laid down on the bed and began to pleasure himself, while also taking photos. He wanted to make sure he had visuals to remember the experience. According to psychology professor Mark Olver, in an interview with Vice, Russell was giving in to his paraphilias, which are abnormal sexual desires involving dangerous or extreme conditions. Interestingly, Dr. Olver has a hard time believing that this was the first time Russell had ever done such a thing. According to Olver, most paraphilias manifest themselves much earlier, usually in the teens and 20s, not at 44 as it was with Russell. Dr. Olver believed that Russell might have been engaging in a myriad of activities that went undetected for years. We know that Russell had fantasized about wearing women's underwear throughout his earlier life, but it's possible he did more than that and was simply never caught. Olver explains, over time, fantasy and maybe loosely consenting partners didn't quite fit the bill, and that's what led to an escalation in severity. Once Russell started, it seemed he couldn't stop, and he didn't restrict his activities to tweed. He began to break into homes near his Ottawa residence, too. Each time, he'd scope out the target to make sure no one was home, then break in and find his way to women's bedrooms. Sometimes it was adult women, other times it was young girls, as young as nine years old. But regardless, he always followed the same sort of pattern. First, he'd photograph the room, including the underwear drawer, once he found it. Then he'd lay the lingerie out on the bed or the floor so he could take a good look at it all. Assuming he could fit into it, he'd model the underwear on himself and take pictures in various poses, including some close-ups. Finally, he'd finish by masturbating, and he'd document that too. Then, when he was done, he'd clean up his mess, take the lingerie, and slip out into the night and back to his home. No one ever the wiser. That's because many of the victims had no idea that their homes had even been invaded. Either they didn't notice anything was missing, or they chalked it up to things getting lost in the laundry. The upshot was that because most of Russell's break-ins went undetected, they also went unreported. The police had no idea just how pervasive the situation was. Of course, there were a few that knew. Sometimes Russell got cocky and left a message. One time, as he left the room of a preteen girl, he stopped at her computer and typed merci onto a document. 
Despite having a strong impulse control throughout his life, it seemed that Russell was starting to slip, his newly awakened sexual desires overpowering his discipline. That loss of control had consequences, and he started making mistakes. Just small mistakes, like fingerprints here and there, or other clues for police to find. Unfortunately, the evidence he did leave wasn't much use to investigators. Russell wasn't in the criminal system, so his fingerprints never came up as a match. No one thought to check the military database. Over the next two years, Russell committed at least 82 break-ins of 48 different homes in Ottawa and Tweed. And in all that time, he had only had one close call when a family returned early, but he escaped out the back of the house and fled before they could catch him. Every other time was smooth sailing. By 2009, Russell had to be feeling invincible. He wasn't just doing the occasional home break-in. He was prolific, and no one so much as suspected him. At the same time that he was secretly terrorizing his two neighborhoods, he was promoted once again, this time to Colonel, and he was named Commanding Officer of 8-Wing Trenton, Canada's biggest Air Force base. But not even his new promotion seemed to satisfy him. If anything, it might have given him an even greater sense that he could get away with things. His confidence was at its peak. So he decided to escalate his crimes. The standard break-in just wasn't cutting it for him anymore. He wanted to try something even riskier. In July 2009, he decided to enter a home while a woman was still there. He waited for her to get into the shower before he broke into the house. But first, he took off all his clothes. It seemed like he got a thrill from the added risk of being caught in the nude. Not that he really wanted to get caught. Russell managed to slip in, steal some underwear, and sneak out, all before the woman finished showering. On another occasion, he chose not to go inside the house, but rather just spied on a teenage girl from outside. He watched her through her window, waiting for her to undress. When she did, he stripped naked and then masturbated. But soon, even these riskier situations weren't cutting it. He craved more stimulation. In September of 2009, Russell left his tweed cottage in the middle of the night. He was dressed in all black with a mask covering his face. He knew the chance he would be seen was much higher this time. He broke into the home of a 21-year-old woman who he knew was still there. He wanted her to be. Russell found the woman asleep but he wanted her awake for this, so he hit her in the head a few times. She started awake, and he bound her hands and pulled a pillowcase over her face. Then he stripped off her clothes and took pictures as he sexually assaulted her. The young woman was understandably panicked, worrying that he was going to rape her, but Russell assured her he wouldn't. Sure enough, when he was done taking pictures, he grabbed some of her underwear and left. As always, he snuck back home and into bed with his wife, settling down as if nothing had happened. But Russell knew what had happened, and his experience had changed him. This latest escalation had given him the extra excitement he desired, but he wanted more, and he knew exactly who his next victim would be. Less than two weeks later, he struck. Russell had already broken into the home of 46-year-old Lori Massacott twice before. Not that she knew that. Just like with his two recent attacks, Russell wanted Lori to be home. And this time, 
he didn't plan on just stealing her underwear. He intended on doing more. Much more. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back soon with part two of David Russell Williams' story when he finally escalates to murder and how mistakes led to his capture. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Have a killer week. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Joanna Philbin and Joel Callen. Fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Serial Killers stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.